making a piece of art about an experience is a, a little bit transcending time in and of itself because you're you know making something about the past but also about the present This is Imagination Radio from Contemporaneous. I'm David Bloom. And I'm Dylan Mattingly. Today on the show, we take another dive into the music of Finnegan Shanahan and his piece, The Two Halves. My first memory of hearing music, I think, has to be Christmas music when I was extremely young, just because there's so many smells and, and other sounds and images and things that accompany that type of music. I'm dreaming of a That's Finn. He's a Brooklyn-based multi-instrumentalist and composer like and a founding member of Contemporaneous from the group's early days at Bard College. With Contemporaneous, you'll most often see him playing violin, but he also plays viola, guitar, keys, percussion, and he sings. Finn has played as a soloist with the American Symphony Orchestra and he's jammed with Pete Seeger. And now he has a band called Boyo and writes and records music for independent films. My, my earliest memory of playing music, I'm, I'm positive, was as cliche as it sounds, was playing pots and pans on the floor of my kitchen, you know, as like a little kid. So, so it was a, a drumming experience. <laughs> Can you think of the ways that you kind of, or the, the forces that brought you from those moments on the floor with the pots and the pans to who you are today as a music creator? Honestly, the most interesting factors don't have anything to do with music. Um, the fact that I grew up around a lot of art and artists was a very formative thing for me. I think I, I derive a lot more inspiration from art and artists than I do from music and musicians as like a creator. And so, you know, growing up with immediate family and extended family and friends, family friends that were artists, um, as much as I did was definitely a big factor. What is The Two Halves and how did you come to start writing it? The Two Halves is a song cycle and it's also a concept album and it was written for Contemporaneous and recorded by Contemporaneous. The piece started out as Finn's senior project at Bard, and truly one of the most ambitious senior projects any of us had ever seen. We recorded the piece in 2014, and it was released the following year on New Amsterdam Records. We've played it live a lot since then. It began as an idea that I had to write music about a map from 1852 of the Hudson River Railroad. And I think the first idea that I ever had before even seeing that map is seeing this map in a friend's house that was a map of the trails on her family's property. And each little place had a different fictional name and was sort of illustrated as if it were a map in the beginning of like a fantasy novel. And I really like that idea of, of not just creating a fictional map, but creating a fictional map that's not totally fictional, that actually could be overlaid over a map of a real place. So I liked that idea. And then I ran across this map of the Hudson River Railroad, and was it was pretty obvious to me that the same thing could be done 
with that map insofar as the map itself was already halfway to becoming that sort of half real, half fictional map. I think that the genre of the fictional map is actually like a, it's a larger, has a larger audience than people like to think. I think that there are a lot of people for whom like opening a fantasy novel and seeing just the map on the first page was the most exciting thing about those books as they're growing up. And I, I even, um, I follow a, I follow a bot on Twitter that generates fictional maps. Really? <laughs> really? Like 20 times a day. Yeah. You can find that bot on Twitter at Uncharted Atlas. 46 minutes ago, it pumped out a map of the autarky of Nimpinlun. And it's like, it uses like a set of parameters and then spits out like, you know, like a bunch of like weird names and like a topological map that looks sort of <laughs> and it's like. Is it like a real a map of a real place or no? No, those are, it's just totally fictional. Yeah, um, but it, it's interesting to hear you talk about it as inspiration because I think it's like I think there's something kind of archetypal about us being interested in a fictional map and especially a fictional map of a real place is a fascinating thing. Surrealism, I think, is something that's in all of my music. And I think that the strongest manifestation of surrealism is through something real, you know? So in other words, the most powerful kinds of fiction are rooted in reality. And when I saw this map of the Hudson River, to me, it struck me as something that I could dream music about. And if I imbued that map with a story of my own, and created music for that story, then that music would be my dream about that map. You're struck with this, this conceptual inspiration, and then how do you turn that into music and where is it in the process where you, where you decide um, like okay and then I see how this becomes a musical experience if you work from concepts and you want to create music that explains those concepts to other people or those ideas to other people I think you have to constantly be thinking about your music and music in general as an analog for other things in life and not just as music and if you do that, then I think, as a composer, you won't be writing music because you had an idea and that's your discipline, so you need to turn it into music. You'll be having those ideas because you're a musician. I don't think that I would have had the same ideas if I was a painter. I think I'd be having totally different ideas. With that kind of inspiration, Finn said he thought of composing as a kind of process of elimination. I think it's a lot of, there's a lot of decision making at each step of the way, and it becomes like in an optometrist, you know, when you're being fitted for glasses and it gets clearer and clearer, sort of become like each sort of pane or sheet of glass falls away and it becomes a little bit clearer with every decision that you make. And something that started out as an idea totally separate from music becomes ever closer to being music.
anyone's first point of entry into a piece of art and to the decisions its creator has made is its title. So we asked Finn why he titled the piece The Two Halves. It means a few different things. I kind of arrived at it because I started to realize that it meant several things, all very relevant to the music and the the concept. First of all, the piece of music is centered around the central symbol of the Hudson River. And the Hudson River, for me, became a path between home and something new. So it, it was symbolic of the experience of growing up and the experience of transitioning from something familiar to something new, but also was the literal path for me between where I grew up and where I was ending up uh, at the time. And I was also traveling back and forth along that path by chance as I was writing this. So kind of experiencing that backwards and forwards in a way, going back home and then going back to the, the place that was new to me. So there's, there's a two-sidedness to the experience of growing up, I think, which is that you have to come to terms with the fact that you are leaving behind something that was once familiar, and you also have to come to terms with the fact that you're that some of that stuff lingers and you keep some of that stuff with you. So permanence and impermanence of growing up. Another one is the classic example of finding one's other half, which is Aristophanes' speech in Plato's Symposium about finding the person that makes you whole. And so in that sense, the two halves means falling in love. The third reason for the title being the two halves is that whomever's narrating the story begins by picturing the universe as far greater than themselves, but gradually over the course of the piece, you know, perceives it as being only as great as their mind or their psyche. And the beauty is that if you venture far enough in either direction, you'll find the other way of thinking. So there are two extremes. That's probably the truest explanation for the title. People talk about the mind-body problem. Does the body contain the mind, or does the mind contain the body? Finn is talking about a sort of mind-universe problem. So Finn says that in his piece, the narrator starts out believing that the universe is much bigger than himself, but eventually he comes to see the universe as entirely within his imagination. And the journey from the one extreme to the other is a part of the story of the piece. This journey relates to the concept uh, insofar as the self, the, the two different sort of modes of self-reflection, treating the world as larger than oneself and, and as opposed to treating the world as inside of yourself and, and it's only uh, as big as your perception of it. The gradual transition between those two modes of thinking is the narrative of whomever is living this story. And that person isn't necessarily me. I want to go back to one of the meanings of two halves. Uh, The finding one's other half and falling in love. Mm -hmm. What is that coming from? What's going into, into the piece through that sort of stream of inspiration and meaning? I think that that element is something that's a very singular moment in the piece, exactly halfway through the piece, but it's perhaps the most important singular element of the piece because it's it's really the result of that outer reflection turning into that inner reflection and meeting in the middle. In a way it's the climax of the piece, but I would 
maybe not use the word climax, I would maybe use the word nexus, because it's the moment when the outer and inner worlds are a perfect reflection of one another. And to me, that's the feeling of falling in love. Love happens to be the closest thing to that feeling, because when you fall in love, that person is your world. Let's go back to that first reason for the title of the two halves, the permanence and impermanence of growing up. There's a physical manifestation of this in Finn's life in the train trips he took between his hometown of Rhinebeck and New York City, where he lives now. Rhinebeck is about two-thirds of the way up the Hudson River toward Albany, and it's near Bard College, where we all went to school together. For almost the entire length of the river, the railroad runs directly next to the Hudson, often just feet above the water. Sometimes the river is flanked by rocky cliffs, sometimes by marshland. You pass mile-long bridges, lighthouses, even the West Point Military Academy. The train accompanies the river next to all of these features, making for absolutely stunning views for the entire trip. And Finn would see those sights as he looked out the window, although it sounds like he kept pretty busy on those trips. I definitely did a lot of composition on the train. I would like to say that I did it intentionally, but I was just sort of on the train a lot, and so I ended up working on this music while I was riding the train along this route that was so essential to the piece itself. The trip that I was making was from Rhinebeck, New York, down to New York City and back, over and over and over. That path between New York City and Rhinebeck was my path of, of growth it definitely was significant that I was going back and forth because I think whether I realized it or not, that made me think about the fact that even though growing up is called growing up for a reason because you can't grow backwards, uh, it's irreversible. Um, there's a lot of, in a lot of ways you can look backwards instead of just looking forwards. So it's a two-way street, I think a little bit. Metaphorically, this made a lot of sense to us, but we wanted to know how it exists in the music. I would say that the music in the very beginning of the album is very much music of motion. There are other parts in, on the record that are um, more placid, more free and out of time, and or simply calmer. But in the beginning of the album, it's definitely music of motion and, and energy. And so really the reason for that is that it, that's the part of the story that's about trains. So it, it felt like the real thing when I was, certainly when I was working on that music while I was on the train, it felt the realist. There are two narrators in the two halves. The first is the subject in the traditional sense, but what is the second doing? The second voice, I think, is some, sometimes responding to the first voice, sometimes giving voice to some of the imagery that's in the music, speaking from the perspective of the train or the sun or the mountainside, you know. And I would say sometimes saying things that the first voice isn't hearing, but two sides to this story, definitely. The train brings us all the way back to that railroad map from 1852 that sparked Finn's imagination. I 
found the map in a library book sale. And it was a facsimile of the, the original map, so it was just a, you know, a print, probably 30 years old or something. To the best of my knowledge, it was in some sort of guidebook or um, tourism book produced shortly after the railroad was completed. So it's pretty empty looking. And aside from being just empty looking, it's definitely not realistic. All of the towns are these little lines with little, you know, eight little boxes for houses. Like that. What? Nice. I have a tattoo of, right, of right, okay. Rhinebeck on the map. That's what Rhinebeck looks like? On that map, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. It's um, it's a really beautiful map. We got an expert opinion on the map. My name is Aaron Reese. Um, my day job is I work as a multimedia journalist, but I think we're here talking more in my capacity as a map maker. I asked Aaron to tell us about the map. So this is the map of the Hudson River Railroad from New York to Albany. So you have at the far end of it Manhattan Island, um, and eventually that would open up into the ocean, and then it goes northward all the way to all the way at the state's capital at Albany. But like some some Albany of antiquity that's like just as big as Poughkeepsie. <laughs> <laughs> So it looks like there are three different framed pieces of one map. So I guess you would like collect them all or something to like (laughs) piece them together to be one long depiction of this whole piece of the Hudson. And it's a long, a long narrow strip of paper like you might imagine in those old printers that would print out in one continuous sheet and kind of fold over itself. So it looks like it might be five or six um, standard pieces of paper, but it's one long sort of tape. And you watch a river kind of like snake the length of this long piece of paper. And then off of the river, there's like different details and points of interest. What looks like a town or a collection of gridded streets. What looks like a a large mountaintop. What looks like small river tributaries or streets or major points of interest. But there's a lot of white space on the map. So the map is, it gives a lot of detail and a lot of focus to a detailed length of river and then the sort of surrounding paper is is mostly blank space is there something here that you would expect to see that you're not seeing i don't see a key that's interesting yeah or uh, even a compass rose maps are they're made up of of usually a very defined symbol language but this there's dotted lines that i'm guessing might be counties there are thicker lines which looks like they might be roads you've got what look like eyelids with eyelashes that i'm assuming are hills um, or mountains but there's no definite definition of what you're looking at which is interesting for a map yeah that is interesting i mean i guess this map is of a place that i know pretty well i know that the compass orientation, but I, I didn't pick up on the fact that there isn't a compass rose yeah. on the map. Yeah, because I mean, when you're looking at a map of a place that you don't know well, it's just spaghetti until you sort of like have something to decode it, right? So right. There are some like cartographic standards. Like you could assume that this kind of like solid black line with white dots in it would be a railroad, but sure. you'd be making an educated guess. And then, exactly. you know, I'm really curious, especially the cities. Some cities look like there's just like five squares does that mean there's literally five buildings or is that supposed to be an abstraction that means small city or small town remember finn's tattoo that's what it looks like 
how how exact are these things you know when you see a collection of streets like here in poughkeepsie is that just like a nod to the fact that there are streets there or are we looking at the actual streets they're not labeled they end in strange places like you're left wondering if it's an abstraction or an accurate depiction which is kind of fun so if you look at the map that that inspired shanahan's piece clearly it's like this map is like a love letter to the hudson river and the hudson river valley like there's dramatic shading, there's fine detail work, all given to the Hudson and to the contours of hills and mountains that would define the Hudson River Valley. But then after that, it's like the mapmaker lost interest. You know, there's nothing a mile outside of the river. We're struck by the sense of awe that both Finn and Aaron have in looking at this map, and at maps in general. I grew up at a time where big fold-out road maps were just as real to me as satellite maps were because Google Earth was just becoming a thing. And so the incredibly detailed, uh, realistic map and the not-so-detailed or just-as-detailed-as-it-needs-to-be kind of map were both familiar things to me. And I was very intrigued by how blank this map was, even though it re- represented a real thing. What about that blankness was interesting to you? The blankness was interesting to me because of all of the places that I knew existed within that blankness that meant something to me. So places along the Hudson River, places in the Catskill Mountains, um, towns between Albany and New York. And so I knew that I had all these real experiences that existed within the edges of this map, and it was blank enough that I felt like they could become part of it or that they didn't need to be drawn on but that the map was somehow asking for more information think that there's like a natural excitement to be had by a bird's eye view by looking at a place in its entirety by being able to see a place in a way you never actually get to see it except the rare occasions when you climb to an incredibly tall mountain or when you're at the top of a massive tower but there's no tower large enough to see from Albany to New York City so like to be able to see these places that you know in a real sense like you've been to Poughkeepsie you've been to Albany you've been to New York City to see them all connected it's unreal it's it's imaginary because you can't conceive of actually beholding all of these places that you've actually been in at one single time because Albany is so far away from the southern tip of Manhattan but here there's like this we get to inhabit this make-believe viewpoint where the places that you know to be real are seen all together at once and you see how they relate to each other. My own first association with the word map is the application in my phone that provides me with like way more details than I could ever need. But that map doesn't spark quite the the imagination that this very vague Hudson River map does, do we lose something the more accurate a map becomes? 
yeah, I don't think you get the same sense of adventure like percolating inside of you or the same sense of romance scrolling through an infinitely zoomable and zoom outable version of the world on your phone as you do by tracing like a a sort of yellowed and worn page in a road atlas. The uncertainty that comes out of looking at a map that has left things out, you lose that when like you could just be like, what is that? And then you just zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in. And you're like, oh, I see. It's like a strange turn in the road that I, now I know. Thinking again about the music, Finn made a record first, and then we played it live. That's not usually how things go. I definitely wrote the album with the idea that it could be performed live. There's something beautiful about the fact that you could write a piece of music that continues to change and be reinterpreted as different people perform it. But there's also something really beautiful about knowing that once you create something in a recorded medium it's permanent, basically. You have to either be really happy with what you've done or be willing to hear the exact same thing differently when you hear it a second and third and fourth time, which is really hard. In terms of other people's music and not you know, my own process, that's the coolest thing about recorded music that I've heard in my life is that you can hear the exact same thing two and three and four and 10 and 20 times and have totally different experiences. Whereas with live music, you hear it a second time and it's a little different. So, oh, of course I had a different experience. That focus on the balance between the thing that stays the same and the thing that changes is similar to the way he talks about Google Maps. A satellite map changes every time a new road or business opens. So you can see something different every time you come to it. But a printed map is frozen in time. So every time you come to it, you can see the gap in time between yourself and when the map was created. When two halves is performed live, mm-hmm. the score that you've made is, is kind of a, a cheat sheet. It's not a complete uh, rendering of everything you want, and that any time that it would be played live, there is some something else uncovered, some of these nuances to the specificity of the sound. And I'm curious about like what some of those things are that have come forth. It has everything to do with contemporaneous, because... Uh, as any really good musician should, they know when to trust the music and then know when to trust themselves a little bit more than the music because they might be able to like color it in a way that will be better for the music. And I, I think we do that with all the music that we play. Part of that is also inherent to the music. So sort of welcoming other people's styles and um, the way that they play their instruments as being you know, a palpable part of the piece. Um, made it such that I could be less specific about certain things. Uh, I think it makes me a little bit more open to chance and the music itself having a like sort of journey of growth because uh, it was written in such a way to begin with that allowed for other people's styles. We've been talking about maps and the personal experiences that went into Finn's piece, but we also wanted to know what musical influences went into the two halves. I was influenced, definitely among other things, by the Planetarium piece by Nico Muley and Sufjan Stevens and Bryce Desner. 
but not so much for musical reasons, more so in terms of scope and in terms of attitude, because that piece is very theatrical and very visual and has a huge sound for a reason. It was created that way from the beginning. So we're talking about Finn's record? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Let's see what I can remember. Okay. Well, I think I think you'll remember. Okay. Just gonna talk a little bit That's... about this plant that I see outside. There's a plant outside my studio now, like a weed that is literally taller than me. Wow. It's pretty amazing. A weed? Yeah. It's a crazy weed and has spikes on it. It's terrifying. Oh my god. <laughs> I don't know what it is. That's... But we've been we were joking about it. Like during tour, like right when we got back from tour, we're like, "Look, this plant grew so much while we were gone. Like it's gonna be bigger than us." And now it actually is. Oh my god! Wait, don't you live on the second floor though? That's Matt Evans. Hi, I'm Matt Evans, and I play the drums and percussion. Matt is one of the percussionists in Contemporaneous, and he plays the drums in the two halves. How did you first encounter Finn's piece, The Two Halves? I was playing with Contemporaneous at Bard, and I met Finn through the group and I do have this really distinct memory of him like, playing on the on an organ or something there was like a Nord in the room and he was like going through some kind of like Philip Glassy kind of like I was like who is this guy like what is this about the music look like when you first saw it or how did you go from just the idea to actually playing music yeah, in the studio? Yeah, I guess we were just kind of playing around with it in the studio even. I think that he had sent me some demos of like drum tracks that he had made. He was that that fit kind of the general sense of what he was imagining and we just kind of like hand wrote some charts and got in the studio and would play around and like some of it was a little more specific because of all of the meter changes but some of it was a little more free and then I don't even really remember rehearsing it <laughs> I literally just remember going in the room <laughs> talking about what we were after I just remember listening to Animal Collective talking about that a little bit <laughs> and then there was something else I mean plenty of other things I'm sure probably the talking heads yeah, and then we just got in the studio, and it was—it really just happened there. It was fun. It was kind of that kind of like more uh, creative, intuitive music making. 
one of the things that I really, that was written very specifically were all the drum parts. They were programmed super specifically. But then if you listen to the album, the drum part is one of the most like idiomatic parts because it sounds so much like it's being played in Matt's style because he let that happen. But I, I think that that goes both ways. I mean, I wrote it with him in mind. The drum set that Matt uses for this piece is a little unusual in that he uses two hi-hats. I asked where that idea came from. Yeah, the drum set was a little wacky, but not like super crazy. It was it mostly came out of that two hi-hat idea. I think we were listening to like a Nick Zamudo track. Finn was like, yeah, what if we had two hi-hats? So I'm totally down. By the way, Nick Zamudo of Zamudo and Books actually mastered the two halves. I get really into playing polyrhythms. <laughs> Anyone knows me, that's the thing I like to do. And so that kind of became a part of like playing with those with having the same sound and being able to play it kind of like polyrhythmically against itself. So the two hi-hats kind of do that kind of material. It seems clear to me that in your strongest musical imaginings there's like a broader context that you bring besides just the music and uh, it goes straight back to um, the way that you described it. your first musical experience hearing christmas music with all the sights and the smells um, attached and i think that you can hear that in a very explicit way on this album also in the way that you use these field recordings of, of twigs and trains and um, various elements of the actual place that you're trying to uh, evoke. Uh, can, you, can you tell us how you thought to do that and, and how that's important to the process? Yeah, the recording of other sounds to be used as part of the music was ended up really being not my job. I, I need to give credit to Doug Hertz, who's a composer, and he helped me uh, sort of implement recorded, found recordings as part of the music. We were recording lots of things that are very tactile, um, like the the sound of water to most people has a real feel to it. And the sound of twigs breaking certainly has to have a feel to it because the twig by itself, it doesn't have much of a sound. <laughs> so we recorded these things that we could feel. Uh, the recording of a train was not just a train from a distance, but it was a train passing directly over us, maybe four feet above us over a trestle on the Tivoli Bays of the Hudson River. And so that was a real feeling to be there. Not that people will know what it felt like just by listening, but I think all of them had that commonality of being tactile sounds. I love his, like, the sort of structure he set up for himself. So to have a map of a place that he cares about and then to try to, like, use it as the first layer 
of a story and to kind of write some imaginary story on top of it, I think that is a really beautiful way to think about creating a piece of art at all. And it's also like all the more beautiful that it ha- that music, I don't associate with cartography at all, but the idea of writing stories onto a map through music, I think is like a beautiful concept. Like I have a deep passion for map making and for places and for recording places. And so being able to listen to a piece of music knowing that that person is trying to make a place through the music or is trying to like chart a place or to chart a course through the music is just it's a really beautiful concept Ben has so many different ideas kind of like floating around and he's in in his head and he's able to just kind of like grab things it's like a very relaxed approach so working with him was really fun because it was just about trying things it was very open it felt like he just wanted to kind of tweeze out intuitive things from everyone that was involved, including myself. Making the transition from life at home and being young to a new life and adulthood felt like absolute emotional continuity to me because it was such a natural transition and a gradual transition and I got to go and come back and go and come back so many times. Um, I mean, I feel very lucky for that because there are times in our life when changes happen very quickly and after the fact, that's very palpable fact that something changed very quickly in your life, but a transition happening gradually between two periods of your life is, is a wonderful thing because you immediately know how your new present self relates to your old present self. Um, there's no lag time. You don't realize that after you wake up, quote unquote, from that experience, you're, you're in it the whole time. Finn, what are you listening to now? I think more than anything else, I'm listening to disco as a genre a lot. Um, And I've thought a lot about why. Some of it is aesthetic, but I've come to the realization that it's sort of related to the reason why I think the feeling that I had when I was traveling from Rhinebeck to New York and back over and over, experiencing this like catharsis or or maturing, it felt a little bit like transcending time in a way. And then making a piece of art about an experience is a a little bit transcending time in and of itself because you're, you know, making something about the past, but also about the present. And I've been listening to disco a lot because it seems to transcend time in this really weird way. Imagination Radio is a production of Contemporaneous, a New York-based ensemble of 22 musicians dedicated to the most exciting music of now. Hear more music, sign up for our email list, find upcoming shows, and learn more at contemporaneous.org. This episode was produced by David Bloom, Dylan Mattingly, that's me, and Charles Van Tassel. Our interns were Nora Grace Flood and Maeve Scheller. Thank you to our guests for this episode, Finnegan Shanahan, Aaron Reese, and Matt Evans. 
For a complete listing of the music in this episode, check out the show notes. You can subscribe to this show wherever you find your podcasts or stream it online at contemporaneous.org slash imagination radio. And please take a moment to leave us a rating or review and share this podcast with your friends. It really helps people to find the show. Stay in touch on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On all three, we are at Econtemp. Till soon. But before I go, Finn, have you seen my apartment? Uh, I don't think so. You're what? You've sent me pictures of like your view. I want to give give you the tour. I'm going to... Yeah, give me the tour. Oh, your apartment. I'm going to press stop. I'm just seeing David's apartment for the first time. All right, I'm going to stop recording, Dylan.